You as a writer or a creator telling the very specific story of your very particular life throws open imaginative possibilities for your reader. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Daniel Grothy is a pastor, a rancher, and the author of The Power of Place, Choosing Stability in a Rootless Age. In his blurb of the book, Wynn Collier said, we live in an ambitious age where all of society's energy prods us to move as fast as we can, as far as we can. Yet amid all this, here's Daniel Grothy with the audacity to suggest that it is often more courageous and more human to sit tight, stay low, and go deep. I caught up with Daniel to talk about embracing obligation, the value of thinking small, and the possibility that God is a materialist. Daniel Grothy, I'm so glad you are on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan Rogers. Happy to be here with you. Um, I loved your book, um, Power of Place, Choosing Stability in a Rootless Age. Um, You've made some choices around stability. Moved out. You're one of those people. We always, you know, everybody who reads Wendell Berry is tempted to go buy a farm, <laughs> and you did it. <laughs> yeah. I assume you read Wendell Berry before you bought this place in, in this ranch. Yeah, Berry. Wendell Berry has been a, an icon for me for a lot of years, but really, it came from my grandparents. Uh, uh-huh. um, my grandparents in Idaho. My mom. Both sides of her family tree have been longtime agrarians. People, salt of the earth farmers work in the land out in Northwest Idaho, right on the Snake River. Mm-hmm. And um, my great-grandfather immigrated over from, from Greece. His name was Hieronymus Athanasius Asmacopoulos. And he got on a boat when he was 12 in Monastraki, Greece, got in the Aegean Sea and headed over as he was the youngest of 10 kids. And his dad died and his mom put him on a boat and said, you'll have a better life in America. So he showed up at Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty, 13 years old. And they said, what's your name, boy? And he wrote it on a little piece of paper, Hieronymus Athanasius Asimacopoulos. And they essentially said, that's not going to work here. <laughs> and so they gave him a phone book and uh, he opened it up to the most common last name and changed his name to Harry Smith. Wow. And he started working the railroads west, 13, 14, 15 meets a a young girl in West Virginia. They fall in love, get married. She jumps on the railroad tracks with him. They go out west, and he's working all the way, saving all his money. And they get to Lapway, Idaho, right on where the snake meets the Clearwater River, and it's land that Lewis and Clark stayed on in their journey west. And they've got all the documentation of them, you know, camping there. And Hmm. so he said, well, this is where I stop. And he went to the Nez Perce Indian tribe, and uh, he said, hey, I want to buy 2,000 acres. And they said, well, by federal law, you know, the U.S. stole our land, but they tell us how much we can sell. Um, So by federal law, we can only sell 140 acres. And so he said, well, I'm going to buy 2,000. So my grandma Wheezy lives on the land that Hieronymus bought. He wrote a letter to Washington, D.C. And she, my grandma Wheezy, 90, She's got a signed document from Vice President Grover Cleveland saying that the Nez Perce tribe can sell 2,000 acres to Hieronymus Asimacopoulos. And so she's still there today. So the land 
water, animals, working outside, building a life. Uh, Grandma lives just up the hill from the house she was born in that her daddy built with his own hands. So that's been in my imagination. And I would go spend my summers working out there with Grandpa Dan. And uh, so I, I had that history as, as a child and, and then reading Wendell Berry and now being a pastor, I think of myself as someone who's kind of farming, working the land, uh, tending souls. Um, so to me, it just made sense for, you know, we had this opportunity to get the land. It made sense to start building a life like that out here. Yeah, that's great. So you, you got a, you live on a, on a, some land uh, near Colorado Springs with a couple of the families, right? Yeah. My, my sister and brother-in-law and another family of our dear friends, we bought a 120 acre homestead together. That's been in one family for a hundred years. Wow. And then the, it was a 102 year old man who bought it in the great depression. He was working it and the family who owned it went belly up. And so he bought it. He had two sons who worked it till 97 and 98. Mm-hmm. And we bought it from the 98 year old a few months before he passed. So it was four generations of people that have worked the land. So uh, we're out here running around. We've got, we just went to the auction this week and bought some more cattle We've uh, raised and sold 20 different head of cattle and feeding the county around here. And people at church, they're sending me pictures of their ribeye steaks saying, thank you so much. And well, yeah, our kids are our kids are working hard and uh, learning about life. Yeah. How many kids are in this on this ranch? Yeah, there's 11 kids on the ranch. We have three ourselves, 14, uh-huh. 12 and nine. But the other families have four kids each. And so we work together on projects and uh, it's a a good way to grow up, I think. That's fun. Uh, I love your little uh, working ranch ordinance for the kids. Earn your shower, earn your dinner, earn your sleep. Yeah. Yeah. We, we We say that we have failed as parents if our kids don't come in dirty and hungry and tired and you know, kids are kids got just they got all the wiggles and the energy and the adrenaline and so we we have projects that the other day i sent the boys out to go down into the creek and gather all the all the dry wood they can find for kindling to get our fire started and we were chopping wood last week so we've got a big wood stack and we've got a kindling stack and they come in and one one night uh, fun story um, my daughter, she was 12 at the time. So two years ago, I said, kids be at the dinner table, six o'clock hands washed. The dinner will be hot and ready at six. Yes, sir. They go run and they're playing with their cousins and friends. Six o'clock, my brother-in-law calls from across the way, across the ranch. And so I go, Hey David. And it was Lily and my daughter. She said, dad, I'm so sorry. I, I'm going to be about 20 minutes late to dinner. And I was immediately kind of frustrated. Like I told, I, I told you, that's what I was thinking in my head, but I didn't say it. And I said, Lillian, what's the deal? And she said, well, dad, I'm not done castrating the piglets yet. And I've I've got to finish castrating them and then suturing them up. And so I'm about 20 minutes late. Yes, ma'am. I thought, when did I think my 12-year-old daughter would be 20 minutes late to dinner because she wasn't done suturing up the castrated piglet? (laughs) So they know about life. They know how it works. They're that no no freshman boy is going to say something to knock her off her spot. She's seen it all and she knows how to castrate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so you have put down roots. Your book is about putting down roots, about choosing to be obligated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, choosing to um, to limit 
your scope in some ways. Is that, is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. We live in a moment in time that thinks if you want to be great, you have to transcend the limitations of your boring little life. Mm-hmm. If you want to, if you want to make a mark on the planet, you have to rise above, you have to escape the confines. And, mm-hmm. and so we're bristling against the very real lives that God has called us to live. And, and we think that it's a problem, but, mm-hmm. but the saints have always understood the, that limitation is holy and that it's good for us. And the saints are always from somewhere. Think about it. Like, <laughs> you know, you've got St. Hildegard of Bingen. You've got St. Augustine of Hippo. You've got St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. On and on. Aquinas is not his last name. I mean, he's from Aquina. Yeah. yeah. So, and you've got Bernard of Clairvaux. You've got Therese yeah. of Calcutta. Like the saints yeah. are always from somewhere. And that comes from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Mm. God who comes to bring salvation to us does not sprinkle fairy dust from the heavenly balconies. He moves into a particular place with particular people. He becomes small to do big salvation work. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I I do think the way forward for us is to fall back in love with the particularities and the confines of our lives, to, to settle into that. And all the people who made a big dent started so unspectacularly local. Mm-hmm. And we look back on it in history through, through rose-colored glasses and think that, oh, they just lived these beautiful transcendent. No, they lived very confined, faithful lives rooted in the particular soil of their place. And over time, we discover that to be the real beautiful work. So, I, yeah, I do, think, I do think we could just settle in. And frankly, I think it would help us with our anxiety Mm-hmm. I think it would help us. We are medicating uh, at a rate that is just unbelievable historically. Yeah. We are the deepest pockets of any society in history and maybe the most relationally bankrupt. We, we, we're, we're, we're medicating it some way. We're hurting. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could slow down and settle down and, and settle into our small lives, we would find deep fulfillment we would find greater fruitfulness and we would sleep better at night mm-hmm. yeah um i'm not sure if you were quoting probably barry or if this was uh you uh you say generalization is the death of intimacy and abstraction mm-hmm. of the arch enemy of love yeah yeah really? uh let's take for an example i, I say somewhere like generalization like i don't love women i love my wife Mm -hmm. it's a problem to generalize it's a it's a problem to abstract i i don't love women i love lisa carol wakely grothy who was born on may 27th 1981 and she brought into the world lillian wilson and wakely and when i can focus my love when i can focus my attention when I can focus my affection, when I can put my hands in the soil of those four lives and let that be the most important investment I make in the world, in my lifetime, then I can, I can, I can change the world. But we want to change the world in abstractions. Yeah. We want to run off and do some grandiose thing out there, this global mark, and it just doesn't work. The way you, the way you make the mark 
is by moving from abstraction and generalization into particularity and into focused intimacy. Yeah. And so I think what we're doing today, we're, I, I'm watching people, I'm 39, I'm as old a millennial as you can be. <laughs> I'm watching people younger than me falling into the temptation of wanderlust. I'm just going to run down to Austin. I'm going to check it out. And then, you know, after three years there, they weren't really feeling my vibe. And I got to go off to LA because I got to write my own story. And then I'm going to go to New York and then maybe I'll run. And you look up after 10 years and you've paid your bills the whole time, but you have nothing to show for it. You don't have any relational rootage. And I think this kind of conversation that we're having about the power of place and choosing stability will actually help us redefine what true riches are. We, we live in a society that says you're rich if you have a lot of money or you're rich if you've got a roof over your head or you're rich if you've paid your bill. No. Saints of old, old philosophers, anthropologists, theologians, artists have said that you're rich if you have a community of affection around you. You're rich if your children have extended aunties and uncles like Jonathan Rogers who can encourage them and speak life over them and jerk the slack out when they're being punks. You're rich if you've got uh, the elderly who have little kids checking in on them. And you're rich if you're a little kid that has an elderly person imparting to you the wisdom that they fought to gain. It's social capital, not just financial capital. And so I think this conversation on place can help us really rediscover what true riches are. Yeah, you're, you're really unapologetic in this book about, about uh, the idea of obligation, right? That, mm-hmm. that you need to obligate yourself. Yes. And um, I love that idea. You know, that, that instead of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my options open. Hey, is, when you're looking at the menu, your options are open, but you're still hungry. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Obligation. I, I show up and I tell my kids when we go to church, I'm a pastor and, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor. I'm saying this because I'm a Christian kids. When we go into church, keep your eyes open. God is going to send you people who need encouragement, who need help, who need someone to come alongside them. They may need money. And kids, we've got, we've got a little money. And if God shows us someone who needs it, we don't have to pray about that. That's something we just, we do. We are on the hook for the people God has put right in front of us. I can't change what's going on in, in Cambodia very well. I can't change what's going on in the Bronx very well. I can't change what's going on in Dallas, Texas. I can change what's happening in my little sphere of influence the smallest concentric circle with my family and with our congregation and with our little region of our city. And so the, the single parents that come to our church, I feel responsible for them. Mm-hmm. I feel responsible to them. And, and if I get a little extra scratch coming in from a, a speaking engagement or something that I do, and it just, I, I got paid for something recently. And Lisa just said to me, that's not for us. And I said, you're exactly right. And so we went to the bank and put the check in and cashed it. And we just kept it in our truck. And we were looking for, I'm not saying that to, oh, Daniel's awesome. I'm saying that's what Christians have always done. (laughs) We are obligated to one another. We are the body of Christ. 
And if one member of the body is hurting, we all are hurting. And if more people, we live in an age of non-committal generality. I I don't want to know. We want to know what's happening in the world, but we don't want to be responsible for what's happening right in front of us. And I think we ought to do the exact opposite, press in to the place right in front of us. I've been thinking a lot about uh, Micah 4.4. Everyone will sit under their own vine, uh, under their own fig tree, and no one's going to make them afraid. Yes. The Lord has spoken it. And, you know, there are so many ways to get afraid, for instance, when we, when, instead of tending our business, I, I recently planted a fig tree. That's part of the reason I started thinking about oh, this first. But, but the, um, as, as our culture sort of takes us away from the place where we are to the things we can't do anything about, it's terrifying to think about all those things I can't do anything about. Exactly. But it's not quite so terrifying to think, I've got neighbors. And Jonathan, you are you are saying what we need to recover. You're like I just read a study recently that um, with social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then just 24 seven news cycle. Mm-hmm. We human beings used to hear like one bad story a day. <laughs> About like, oh my gosh, someone's got cancer. Yeah. Or or someone we know, someone broke their leg. Someone we know is off at the war, and we heard they got hurt. You know, holy smokes! And we would carry that, and we would sit with that, and that used to be the human way. We would hear one really overwhelming story a day. We are hearing hundreds, minimum hundreds, of terrible stories a day. Yeah. Seeing the story, this family, and oh my gosh, and this homeless person on the side of the road in Cleveland, and this mm-hmm. story of you know a, a, a tsunami that hit over there, and then a tornado that hit over there, and it is overwhelming us to the point of inaction. Yeah. So, so we're aware of what's happening in Cambodia. We're aware of what's happening in South Sudan. We're aware, and and thank God for news in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. But actually, what it's doing is it's it's crushing us to where we're not even able to help our neighbor. Yeah. So, what what if we flip that in the exact opposite direction? And I'll give you a story. I last week it was you know right before Thanksgiving, and a, a man in the congregation heard me preach about our obligations to one another. And he came up to me the next day and he handed me 10 envelopes. And he said, I don't want anyone to know who I am. I I understand that you're aware of needs in our congregation. Go make it happen. And uh, each envelope had 10 $100 bills in them. So he gave me $10,000. And we went door to door, my wife and I, on Wednesday before Thanksgiving to 10 families in our congregation and said, Hey, we understand that this is going on. We, you know, one man, his wife just died this year, 43 years old of cancer, got five kids. We walk in his living room the day before Thanksgiving. He's trying to figure out how to buy Christmas gifts. And we said, Hey, man of God, I I buried his wife. I love this family known for a long time. And I said, someone in our congregation heard that you needed help. And he felt by the, the spirit of God, that, that this money's not his, this money's yours. And he starts sobbing. And we had 10 stories on that Wednesday. It's because someone understood that to be a believer in Jesus Christ 
is not to escape into our abstraction or to escape into our own self-protectionism, but it's actually to press in to the very real needs right in front of us to be obligated. And if we could do this, if we could go micro, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the world would be changed on a macro scale by a bunch of people going micro. Yeah. Okay. This is a podcast about writing. Yeah. So let's let, I want to talk about how some of these ideas about being local, being micro, being specific, being mm-hmm. obligated, yeah, um, affect or, or shape the writing life or, or the the creative process or just creative work. Yeah. And by the way, I define creative work very broadly, right? I mean, I think cooking is creative work. I mean, yeah. not just I think I, it is, right? It is. <clears throat> Any, anything that's telling a truer story. Yes. Uh, about what's what's true and real and what's yes. good and beautiful. Yeah. So, anyway, um, you, uh, I mean, some of the things you've been talking about, it seems to me, the you know, the more, it, there's something counterintuitive for the creative life, perhaps, about as I make more, uh, you know, as I'm more obligated to, you know, my local life. Yeah. How am I going to find time to write? How am I going? I mean, the, you know, part of the the truth is for a writer, one of the things you're trying to do is reach out to people who aren't in your yes. immediate circle. Yes. Right? I mean, the, the reason I the reason I publish it is so that people who don't live on, you know, in my neighborhood can actually see it. Exactly. And. You as a writer or a creator telling the very specific story of your very particular life throws open imaginative possibilities for your reader. Mm-hmm. Annie Dillard is one of my favorite writers, and I feature her in the book in one chapter. And Annie Dillard notices everything. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, can't, I just can't even believe how she's able to pay such attention to detail. And when I read Annie Dillard, it's like a burning bush experience for me because it, I, I start seeing things that I didn't see before. She is like a, she is like a tonic to the imagination. She, she, she cleanses, purifies, and reawakens and, and creates new possibilities. So I, one of these single moms, I went into her house on Wednesday with Lisa the day before Thanksgiving with cash for her. I walked into her little apartment and there's stuff crammed everywhere. And she's got a, a freezer in the corner of her living room with power aids all surrounding it and on top of it. And I immediately think to myself, this is a woman who's had to fight for her two, her two children for 20 plus years. No one else. She has no family, yeah. no parent, no one else. And I thought, this is the living room of a woman who has had to save every single shred of provision to take care of her little brood. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, she's going to have a freezer in the corner of the living room and Powerades stacked all around it. And she probably bought those Powerades in bulk because she had a little extra cash one day and thought, well, I may not have cash next time and I got to mm-hmm. get my boy what he needs for practice. So we can go into that. I can say I went into a lady's apartment or I can say 
I walked in and it was pitch black in there, not a blind was opened. And she, she was closed in from the world. And I noticed the freezer in the corner with the Powerade stacked all around it and the vacuum in the corner. And she was in her bathrobe draped around her shoulders. And like, this is what writers and creators do. They wake the reader the, the, up to the world. So the very particular life that you are living becomes a gateway into people discovering and falling back in love with the very particular lives that they live. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor says one country has to do for all countries, right? She wrote, she wrote about her own little country, middle Georgia. And, and that was, that's the only route to the universal, right? The, the, the universal, the only, the only path of the universal is through the, the local and the specific. Or other people have said, like Flannery, write what only you can write mm-hmm. and, and write it in the way that only you can write it. Write it in your voice. And in doing so, somehow it becomes a universal gift. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery. Yep. Yep. You say that uh, that God is a materialist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you're, I've heard that. Where have I run across that before? Have I run across that somewhere else? I've Never, I've never okay. run across it. So I, yeah. I thought I was saying something unique there. If someone else has said it, great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I promise you, I wasn't plagiarizing. Yeah, right. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? When you say that God is materialist, we think of God as some sheer force of deity in the sky that is amorphous, an amorphous blob of power. God <laughs> and well, you open Genesis 1, that, that's not at all what you see. What you see is God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You see God checking the herbs and the trees and the vegetation and dreaming. And you know what we need over here in this section of the garden? We need this. And we see God putting his hands in the dust of the earth and bending down and collecting together a little cadaver of nothingness and breathing the breath breath like there was there was an investment of ruach into and and consciousness cracks open and god is playful and god is imaginative and he goes and he finds adam and eve hiding behind the tree when when they were caught when when their consciences struck them he like this is and and then we look at jesus He's out making fish for his boys on the shore and he's breaking bread and there's crumbs everywhere and he's drinking wine and he's confused with a drunkard and a glutton because he's going from house to house partying and he's, he's grabbing water and and dousing people and he's grabbing mud and rubbing it in the blind man's eyes. And Jesus is an unabashed materialist. And so I, I, I wanted to say it that way as a way of trying to wake up the reader that God is not some distant spiritual deity in the skies that we have to sort of, you know, channel our greatest voodoo to access. God is available to us right here, right now. And the walk I went on this morning with my bride, with our four dogs, we live out on a ranch. We've got four dogs. It's, it's malpractice not to have four dogs. <laughs> We're, we got the dogs running everywhere and spooking the deer out. And I'm out there crunching the grass underneath my feet going, come Holy Spirit, 
have your way today on earth as it is in heaven. God is a materialist. Um, the, you, you use that phrase in the chapter about Wendell Berry. Um, and th- there's that great passage in, um, in uh, I think it's in Jaber Crow where Wendell Berry talks about, you know, Preachers might fulminate against, you know, the flesh, but then look at them at at, at, at lunch. Nobody believes it, right? I mean, no, no, because and then that's a great passage, by the way, in which he just lists items of food. Yes, and and it that material reality of the of the feasting table, yes. um, it, you know, awakens us. You, you've, you've already said something about, you know, the right kind of writing awakens us mm-hmm. to things. And, and, and I love that, that list of fried chicken and biscuits and beans. And, and, uh, you know, I thought about that passage uh, also with, with regard to what you did quote from, from Barry, that is, you know, this idea that, that God didn't start loving the world at John three sixteen. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It, like, this is not new. This is the beginning of our story, flesh and bone and, and brokenness and uh, strong appetite yeah. and desire and uh, passion, flesh. And of course, it's got to be channeled and, and, uh, and redeemed and cooperated with, like work with the grain of the universe. Don't go against it. It'll break you. But us retreating from our very fleshly lives is not the is not the way forward it's, it's pressing in and and what are the greatest moments that we remember the greatest moments i i can take you to grandma wheezy the first thing i do when i go into her house i'm a 39 year old man with three kids of my own i go in i take off my shirt i lay on the couch and she comes over and she starts scratching my back like only Grandma Wheezy can, there is no human on the planet who can scratch a back like Grandma Wheezy. And then she runs in and she's got her biscuits and gravy on the stove and she's ready to, she's chasing me around with a fork the whole time. I'm <laughs> Holding my child for the first time, watching Lily and Carol Grothy breathe under the hot lamp 20 minutes after she's been born. And I just collapse. Like that's not, that's not side work in the kingdom of God. Yeah, right. And Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. (laughs) And he gave them the cup of new wine. And he said, here you go, drink up, y'all. This is a guarantee for forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not running away from the flesh. Jesus is teaching us to press into it. And so God is a materialist. And our writing, as we're doing it, as we're doing it well, we will help people come back alive to the realities all around them when we do it well. Yeah. You, uh, 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 this is not a quote, it's a paraphrase uh, from Barry. When we discover how much God loved the world, we begin to discover our calling to, to pay attention, to, to love the world and give it our full attention, to notice its beauty, to be enraptured by its mysteries. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you pay attention, that we're back to writing now. As you pay attention, you've got something to write about. It, yes. And people are are dying for this. 
Mm-hmm. People are dying to be. We, uh, we live in an age of disincarnation. Mm, yeah. We, we've got our screens. We've got, we're, yeah. we have every reason to run from the, the fleshy, physical, materialistic lives. We're, and I, we bring people out here to the ranch, and we've got six horses out here. My brother-in-law is just a cowboy. And <laughs> we bring these kids who, who live in apartments, you know, and haven't been out because they've been locked down for two years. And they come out here, and the horses take is whacking them and there's flies you know that there's and and the little pigs are running all over the place and the kids get to try to wrestle them and pick up the kids and what do they do they laugh they laugh for for hours and you don't have to teach kids how to do this mm-hmm. they know they there's no manual for how to live outside it you just do it but as we get older and as we get more technologically savvy we we forget and so i think it's our invitation to bring people back into the details of their lives you know i i, I wouldn't want to minimize the sins of the flesh of course but i'm more concerned about the sins of fleshlessness these days <laughs> <laughs> you better say it man I, I i was so nervous to mess something up you know when yeah. i i grew up in a i love my upbringing my parents are amazing pastors faithful they they taught me the scriptures there was a christian subculture in the in tulsa oklahoma that i grew up in that was just scared of of messing anything up mm-hmm. and i i mean we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go the girl go with girls that do mm-hmm. and and you don't drink and you, i mean like that's all the the terrible stuff and you're going to hell if you do all that stuff and we were just so suspicious mm-hmm. of the gifts god had given to us um so it's time i think to swing the pendulum back to the middle sure there are these extreme poles out here it can destroy you but also uh, you know if if you the overuse of it can destroy you but but the underuse or the inattention to can shrivel up the soul as fast as sure. uh, giving yourself over to it so finding the gift right in the middle uh yeah there's gifts all around us will we have eyes to see it yeah yeah let, uh look in the world is it is it um uh Capon talks about looking the world back to beauty. <laughs> I Come mean, on, paying man. attention, oh, right? I mean, it's 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 oh, the, it, ennobling. Is ennobling the right word? I mean, it, when you when you say I've paid attention to this, I've noticed it, and I just wrote it down for you. You are acknowledging the nobility in in whatever it is that you just wrote about, or the person you just wrote about, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um. All right, we're about to run out of time, but I want to talk about um, Annie Dillard for a minute because you devote a chapter in your book to Annie Dillard. And I didn't know this story about her uh, reading a book by Henry Beston, Life yeah. on a Northern Farm or something like that, which seems like a great topic for a, for, a, for a book, right? A naturalist. And she hated it. She thought it was so boring and uninteresting. Yep. And her writing career was sort of an answer to that. To, to that, that. <clears throat> and so she, you know, here's this person has this great topic, this great, you know, a Northern farm. And uh, it, I haven't read that book, but, uh, you know, Diller seems to think he, he 
failed. <laughs> and yeah. then she writes Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And as you said, the amazing thing about Tinker Creek is how unamazing it is if you're not paying attention. Yes. You know, the, so, the place itself, the book is amazing. And it's about a, a place that you and I wouldn't pay attention to. Exactly. So she's reading this book by Henry Beston, Life on a Northern Farm. And she writes in her journal, like this is some world-class uh, naturalist. Henry Beston has, shows she's got this uh, understanding of what it's going to be. She comes to it and she, she writes in her journal, why I didn't like this book. It was a bore. Not only did nothing happen okay, but there was no trace of mind. As a naturalist, he didn't teach me a thing. He didn't even bother to look up fireflies. As an observer of the social scene, which is a boring thing to be in the first place, he's ordinary and conservative, no imagination. <laughs> and so she says in her, in her journal, she essentially says, I can do better than that. Mm -hmm. And it sets her on a track. This book that she had high hopes for that was just an absolute absolute waste of time with no imagination. She says the world deserves better than that. And so she goes on this writing journey and she's a stay at home mom mm -hmm. in her late twenties. And in that same journal, she writes, she's just despairing. She's depressed. She's ready to quit. She goes, who will ever read this stay at home mom? I have uh, essentially, I have nothing to give. She knew she was a great writer, but she didn't think anyone would be interested in her. So she starts going down to a little Creek, Tinker Creek. And she walked from her little row home in a boring suburb, uh, Roanoke, Virginia. No one wants to be in Roanoke. And, you know, what, what shocked me about Tinker Creek, I didn't know this until I started studying. I would, I, I read her and I think of her as some sort of out in, you know, John yeah. Muir out in the yeah. great wilderness, the, the parks, Yosemite and Glacier. And no. She's walking from her row home as a stay-at-home mom down to Tinker Creek where there's construction workers smoking in the corner and there's school buses blazing by and there's an ambulance picking up a lady with COPD and there's, it's just, there's ducks and there's trash and it's not a sexy scene. And what does she do? She takes a little suburb and she re-enchants the world. She turns a humdrum neighborhood into holy ground. She, she helps us start to see past our first glance of what Tinker Creek is. And she, she shows us the burning bush that is there always, if we will only have eyes to see it. Yeah, yeah. I, um, and the, and I'm about to ask you this question in a minute because it's always my last question for all these episodes. But the, the question, which I'm not asking you yet, is who are the writers who make you want to write? And I love that story that the writer that made Annie Dillard want to write was somebody who, who she thought the world deserved better than, than, than what she had seen. I love boring books about interesting topics. They make me want to go, you know, do something with it. Um, yeah. They challenge uh, you. Wake up, rise up, do better. Yeah. All right. Now I want to ask you the question. Right? Who are the writers that make you want to write, Daniel? The writers that make me want to write... Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, yeah. um, um, Toni Morrison, first black female laureate, Nobel laureate. Just, oh my gosh. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, Henry Nowen, Thomas Merton, 
Um, oh. Ross Gay, a poet. Yeah. Yeah, yes. I, I love. I love. What's that? The 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 book of gratitude. What what's mm-hmm. his, his long poem that he? Mm-hmm. Is it the book of gratitudes? I think so. Yeah. Brian Doyle. Oh I mean, yeah, man. Brian Doyle. God Almighty, I wish he was still alive. We lost him soon. But one long river of song. If yeah. any of you are looking for an entry point into, I mean, just these long run-on sentences that mm-hmm. just awaken the soul. So. Yeah. That, that essay of his about hummingbirds is just one of the best things I've ever seen. It is. It is. So those are the people that just top of mind move. Great. Um, you need to, to track down Margaret Rankle, R-E-N-K-L. Um, she's a nature writer kind of in the vein of, of um, Doyle. She lives in Nashville. And okay. um, yeah, check her out. All right, man. We better wrap it up there. Jonathan, thanks so much for all your podcast listeners in the Rabbit Room Network. God bless you. Be well. (laughs) Write and change the world. (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. This podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.